ever cared about or everyone I was ever close to until it was just me, just me. And there's a line in our book, it says the alcoholic will know a loneliness such as few do. And boy, that was sure true the last couple of years of my drinking. And I didn't understand what had happened to me. Um, because <clears throat> at one time, alcohol connected me to life. You know, Bill talks, Bill uses a phrase in his story in the book where, where he was, he's approaching his first drunk and he says, I was a part of life at last. And I, I really get that. Alcohol had set me free and it allowed me to be external and be out in the world and connect with people and, and feel a, a sense of intimacy with people when I was drinking with them. And, and then at the end, the last three, four years of my drinking, three at least, I, I drank in loneliness, I drank in depression. Uh, and I yet I keep chasing with the hope of capturing the, the ghosts of parties past. You know, and I keep chasing it and I'm dying because I can't. And, and it's not just that I, it's destroying me and destroying my life and destroying every relationship with anyone I've ever cared about. But I'm doing, it's doing all of that and there is no more ease and comfort. There is no more relief in the bag and the bottle. And I don't know what's happening to me. And I don't know that I'm alcoholic. I, I, I could admit that I was an alcoholic in a treatment center or at an AA meeting because I don't want problems. And I just, I don't, you know, if you don't say you're an alcoholic in the treatment center or the AA meetings, you know, people are going to come up to you and they're going to want to tell you something, which always felt like a lecture to me. And so I, you know, I just, I don't want any problems. So I just, yes, I'm Bob, I'm an alcoholic. But I don't even think I understood what that meant. What I, to me, what I'm really saying is I'm admitting that, yeah, I'm Bob and I've got a lot of problems. I'm Bob and my life's a mess. I brought, I'm Bob and I don't feel good anymore. Um, but alcoholic, I don't even know what that is. And I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I know experientially today about this thing called alcoholism. I'm an alcoholic for several reasons. One is that alcohol in the early days of my drinking, in the days when the obsession with the effect was, was set in place and that would control my life for the next many years, in the early days when that obsession was set, Alcohol did something for me that was so spectacular that I, I just lived for it. It's, and what did it do? Well, it, you'll hear a hundred people say it a hundred different ways. You know, it took away your fear, allowed you to connect with people, allowed you to come out and play, allowed you to, to, to talk to members of the opposite sex. It allowed you to feel like you were somebody and you, you, were significant and valid and you fit and all your inadequacies would be shed. But you could kind of put all of that under one umbrella. That what alcohol did for me is it relieved me of the bondage of self. 
See, that's my problem. I don't know that that's my problem, but that's my problem is that when I'm sober, I just got myself on me. I mean, I just, my worries and my fears and my resentments and my feelings of inadequacy and it's just all right here and the shame and the guilt, it's all right here. And my sense of, and, and I have this feeling that I'm not worth anything because I'm not perfect. And it's all right here. And I drink alcohol and it just comes up off of me and I'm free. And I'll tell you something I've come to believe. I think there's only one freedom and it contains all freedoms, and that is the freedom from the bondage of self. It, it was the reason I drank alcohol, and it is the reason I do Alcoholics Anonymous, and I say yes to everything that Alcoholics Anonymous asked me to do, because AA is designed through its actions to recreate an effect that was found in the early days of drinking, that feeling of freedom. And it's uh, what a spectacular thing. You know, I'll share a little story with you. Many years ago, I'd, I've always done a lot of uh, institutions, prisons, detoxes, treatment centers. I've, I do several, I've always done several a week uh, for over 42 years. And several years ago, I was going uh, to a, one of the guys I sponsor had a panel up on Morro Bay, California, the Central Coast. And it was at one of those maximum security penitentiaries where all where they they send all the people that are doing or most of the people that are doing life imprisonment end up there they'll never get out some of them are doing multiple life sentences and we go through the security and we're coming down this long hallway that that eventually goes into the cafeteria the the dining hall where the meeting is and you could you could feel the energy as you'll feel good energy as you're walking into any live, really solid AA meeting, you feel the spirit in the room. I could feel it before we even walked into the dining hall. And as we turned the corner to, to walk down the little passageway into the dining hall, there was a whole line of greeters there that were just very enthusiastic and very happy that for the AA meeting and, and happy for their recovery. And as we got in there, my sponsee, who knew a lot of the guys, because he, he went to that meeting frequently, he started pointing out guys to me. He said, see that guy on the back wall sitting with a guy in the, with a big book, and they're, they're laughing and carrying on? And I said, yeah. He said, he's a lifer. He'll never get out. And that guy over there that, that, that tried to get us some coffee that was, seemed so enthusiastic about being here, he's a lifer. He'll never get out of prison. And he showed me these people. And, and as, I, as I watched them, and I noticed how free they seemed to be, how enthusiastic and happy they were about their lives, locked in a penitentiary for life. And what was remarkable to me is earlier that week, I'd gone to a noon AA discussion meeting at one of the AA clubs where most of the people drove Porsches and Mercedes and, and they lived in big houses and, and they were all narcissistically depressed. They were all 
chronically dissatisfied and, and they looked depressed and some a lot of them were on medication because in this big robust financially secure lives that they had it wasn't quite enough and i thought to myself my god these guys in this penitentiary who will never get out they're freer than the people i was in that noon meeting with earlier this week because there's only one freedom that means anything, and that's the freedom from the bondage of self. And the difference between the one group and the other group is the people in prison knew what their primary purpose was, and it wasn't themselves. And they dedicated themselves to helping the new people that came into the prison, to helping the other members of Alcoholics Anonymous, to doing service. And the people that driving the Mercedes at the fancy meeting with a, in the suburban area of Las Vegas. Their primary purpose was themselves. And it was killing them. And they didn't know what it was. But my grand sponsor was a guy named Chuck. And Chuck used to, said one time something that really stuck with me all these years. And that I probably heard him say that in 1980, maybe 79, 80, 81. And Chuck said there, if you're, if you have this illness, this thing that we have, there'll come a time where you, where you will run out of things that you can put between you and you. And there you are. And the, the shines were off of the fancy car and the shines were off of the big house and the shines were off of the prestigious job. And, the shines wore off of just about everything. And there you are. And there's no longer anything you can grab onto desperately to put between you and these horrid vacancies inside of me. And boy, do I get that. Because I've experienced that in sobriety uh, from, from the time I was probably, I don't even know, somewhere in my teens. I, 13 years sober, maybe to 19 years sober, I, I lost my way here a little bit, even though I was going to seven, eight meetings a week, even though I, had sp I was sponsoring a bunch of guys. But the, the way that I lost was internal in my angle of approach. You know, there's a, I heard a guy say this many, many years ago, that, Al that AA could also stand for altered attitudes. And then he went on to say, because he was a pilot, that an attitude was the angle of approach. And that my attitude had been had altered. And what my angle of approach shifted from was from helping others being the center of my life. It was the reason I was saved from an alcoholic death. And I was given a purpose greater than myself, a purpose that made a rightness about everything I've ever happened to me in my life. All my failures and my, my, my shame and my guilt, everything became useful behind the primary purpose of helping another drunk. And somewhere I forgot that and my success and the, I was making a lot of money and I was getting prestige and properties and and, and it all went to my head. And in 19 years sober, I sunk into a deep depression, a, a frightening depression, a depression that eventually left unchecked 
could have taken me back out again. Because I'm the kind of alcoholic when my emotions are putting this true and this relief, I'll go for the relief after having my emotions put the screws to me long enough. And I, I was very, very lucky. A friend of mine said some things to me and it snapped me out of it. And I realized that I'd lost my way, that I'd become totally self-absorbed again and self-focused, that I was the center of my life and, and I was my primary purpose. And I, I didn't know that that had happened to me. I, it, it was not an intent intentional thing it was it i didn't even realize the the slow glacier like drift away from a life where my whole purpose for everything was helping drunks and to a life where my whole purpose for everything was helping me and my toys and my properties and me 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 and you can always you can always tell what you worship. That at the end of your day, if you were to make a pie graph of everything you've been turning your consciousness towards, everything you've been thinking about, the thing that dominates the pie graph is what you obsessively turn your consciousness towards. And I realized that. At that point in my life, as it's been at other points, I get I start to get spiritually sick because what owns the pie graph, what becomes what I am obsessively turning my thoughts to and my mind to is me. And a person wrapped up in themselves makes a very small package. And so I was very, very fortunate to get kicked kicked by a few words a guy said to me until then I was filling my car up again with newcomers and I was going to meetings not looking for my friends and not looking for gratification and not looking to share and all my entitlement that, that, that oh, I need to share about my feeling it was all it was all broken out of me and I went to meetings for one reason one reason only and that was to look for new guys and to try imperfectly and awkwardly to fulfill my God-given primary purpose of helping other drunks. And one of the things that has connected me here, you know, I, I went to my first meeting in 1971. I was a young kid. I wasn't even old enough to take a legal drink yet. And I, I didn't think I was an alcoholic because I had, I used a lot of drugs but that has nothing to do with alcoholism. And it's so, it, it's so important to find out the truth. Are you an alcoholic? Now, you know, treatment centers screwed me up because they, they'd ask you these questions when they check you in. They'd say, what's your drug of choice? Well, what do you got? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I broke open a magic marker in jail one time and huffed it, hoping something was happening. I drink, I drink vanilla extract and cough medicine. And what they should ask you is to find out if you have this fatal illness called alcoholism, 
which is going to take a guy like you and you're going to relapse yourself to death or you're eventually going to commit suicide because you you're in a trap you can't spring because getting high doesn't work anymore and you can't live without it what they should ask you to determine and, and help you to find your alcoholism is what happens to you when you drink bob could could you pass the test in the book on page 30 when it says, if you're not sure, if you're an alcoholic, you can quickly diagnose yourself. Go over to the nearest pub, the nearest bar room, and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and then stop abruptly. So are you an alcoholic? Could you pass that test? Could you go in every night of the week for a week or 10 days and just have two strong drinks and that's it? Now, you can't smoke nothing, take nothing, 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 just two drinks, and then go home and be okay. If you're an alcoholic, you can't do that. And, and you may not be able to do that and not understand that you can't do it because of the way alcoholism uses your own mind against you, as it would me. If I went in to take that test because I'm in some treatments, I just get out of some treatment center and these people in AA are trying to feed me a line of BS about having some kind of allergy to alcohol, which I don't think I have, and some kind of phenomenon, a craving reaction to the allergy, which I don't think I have. All right, I'm going to go into this bar room, and I'm going to have two double shots of whiskey, and then I'm going to go home, then, then nothing else, nothing, nothing, nothing. Well, as I'm starting the second drink, there. A, a, a consciousness shift would occur within me. It, it almost feels like an epiphany. It almost feels like I'm, I'm getting smarter after that first drink. And what would occur to me at that point is that this is a bad test day. There's a girl sitting over there at the bar that might be my soulmate. I got to stay and have a drink with her. There's the game. That game is on. I didn't know that game was on. I can't leave now. Joe just walked in. Joe's got some good pot to smoke. I got to have a drink with Joe. Tomorrow, I'll do the test. I'll do this tomorrow. Tomorrow will be better. And I don't even understand that alcoholism is using my own mind against me. To me, it doesn't seem like a craving. It doesn't seem like an allergic reaction to alcohol. It seems to me like I just changed my mind. I, I had an epiphany with new information and new circumstances because I'm in the grip of, a, of an ego-driven sickness that chatters to me and talks to me in my own head. If you're an alcoholic, you've refined your ability to justify yourself. You've refined your ability to rationalize and explain and defend things. And you've refined it to such and honed it to such an art form that you don't even know you're doing it. It's automatic. The minute the, the minute the voice, the chatter comes on, the voice of the negotiator is I'm in the grip of something I don't know that I'm in the grip of, that I'm being driven by this self, this ego. And I don't know it. And the reason I can't take the first drink without eventually burning my life to the ground is that I have an allergy to alcohol. I didn't know it. It doesn't matter that I didn't know it. I had it still that when I drink alcohol, something happens to me that only happens to alcoholics. 
And this is very important because if you're going to buy the whole package here, if you're going to leave the group who's relapsing themselves to death in Alcoholics Anonymous and join the ones that are recovering, you got to completely give yourself to this simple program. It's, it's read at every meeting in chapter five. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely, which completely is a lot, completely give themselves this simple program. I was part of that group for seven years and I didn't know it. I thought I was doing AA because I went to meetings and I tried not to drink. And I was trying not to do drugs. I thought I was part of AA. I wasn't even close. I wasn't doing what all the people that are getting better are doing. I wasn't helping anybody. I wasn't sponsoring anybody. I, I, I wasn't, I hadn't made all my amends. I made a couple, you know, the ones that are breathing down your neck that you can't dodge. I never did a treat. I never did a, a fourth and fifth step. I, I, you know, in treatment centers, they make you write out your life story. I thought that was a fourth step. It wasn't a, that's not a fourth step. That's an exercise in narcissism. And so I, I didn't know it. And, 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 and the other aspect of alcoholism that makes this a chronic illness is it's not just that I had this abnormal reaction to alcohol when I do, but I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence and I can't see it. And when it comes to alcoholism, it's the stuff you're not awake to that's going to kill you. And I don't know that I have this abnormal reaction to alcoholism, to abstinence. But here's what happens to me every single time I get sober. And I don't get sober until I've really burnt my life to the ground again. And I'm in some detox or I'm in the jail with ink on my fingers. And I'm somewhere and I'm getting entering into this state of abstinence again. And in the beginning, I, I am very committed to never because I'm not stupid. I get it, man. I get it. I must not touch this stuff ever again. Look what that, it's, it's destroying me. And I'll swear to myself and I'll mean it with everything in me. I'm never touching that stuff again. And then some stuff starts to happen inside of me that I don't understand. It's subtle. I get these feelings, you know, this restlessness, just this feeling, this inability to feel settled anywhere. I get very irritated by people. I don't know what it is about me, but you get me sober and I have a hyper consciousness of stupidity in people. I see stupid everywhere I look and it just irritates me. I don't suffer stupidity well. And I, I think, I think because of this ego that has captured me, that, that I'm in its bondage, I think that I'm just smarter than people. I'm not smarter than people. I'm more egocentric than others. I'm more full of myself. I'm more overwhelmed with feelings of inadequacy and not enoughness that I have to, I developed this defense mechanism of tearing other people down mentally and finding fault in them. I'm a fault finder. I have a noticer in my head that it never notices the good in you. Oh, but it notices the things you're not doing right. It, no, it even notices what you're thinking and judges you for it. Like I, as if I'm clairvoyant or something. I've quit jobs based on what I think they're thinking. 
right? That's insane. That is such an egocentric position to take as if I can read minds. And then you know how we are. Once I make a judgment, an opinion about you, you cannot dissuade me from it. And if you don't have the same opinion about this job or those people, the minute you you try to say something contrary to what I believe is right, you're stupid, right? You're stupid. And so I'm the, I, I didn't know that this ego I have is the most defended, one of the most defended mechanisms in the universe. And because of it, I'm restless. I'm insatiably unhappy. I'm irritable. And no matter what I bring into my life in, a, in some sort of frantic, urgent desperation to fill my vacancy so I can get more comfortable sober so I don't have to return to the madness, you know, like a relationship. I need a relationship. Like money. I need more money. Like prestige. I need more prestige. No matter what I've targeted in my crosshairs as, as essential for me to feel better sober so I don't have to go back to the madness, so I'll be okay. A victim of a delusion, it talks about in chapter five, that I could wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I just manage well, if I just get it all lined up. And then you know what happens, because it, maybe it happens if you're chronic, maybe it happens for you too. You bring these, you acquire these amazing things. And how quickly the shine wears off of them. How quickly I, I get to that feeling like, what happened? That was going to be so great. How could I have been so wrong about her and that? And how how, how come... How come I feel let down and chronically disappointed in life from everything I thought was going to make a difference? It's called alcoholism. It's a disease that uses your own mind. It captures your own mind and uses it against you. And here's the crazy part about alcoholism. This chatter in my head this conversation I seem to have with myself in my head. I think it's me. The greatest trick the ego has ever done is to convince me that it's, it's not an ego, it's me. That's me. Or even, even a greater trick is, to con is the ego will convince me it doesn't exist. It's just me. Because it talks to me in my own voice. And I, I had an experience in early sobriety. I, I, was, I, was, I was having a, I used, to, I used to have nervous breakdowns on a regular basis in early sobriety. People would have to talk me off the ledge because I just get crazy. I, I would get overwhelmed solving problems that haven't occurred yet, but they're coming. I can see it. And I just make myself nuts like till I felt like, in worry and anxiety about stuff that hasn't even occurred yet, I'd feel like I was having a nervous breakdown. And I'd either just feel like I'm going to lose it or else I would implode into a deep depression. 
and I'm having, the, I went to this old timer and I was telling him all the stuff that was on my plate that I was coming at me. I, I, I know by next month I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to lose my place to live because I, I just, because I'm going to lose my job because the people don't like me there. I can tell by their body language. It's just a matter of time till I'm, they're, they're going to ask me to leave. And, and I have all these problems. I, I, there were times where I, I thought I had a brain tumor. Like I, I could almost feel it growing from the anxiety, you know? And I, I would tell this all this, I dump like five minutes or more of problems on this guy who's sober a long time. And he listened very patiently. And then he said something that I'd never heard before. And I'd spent, by this time, I'd spent seven years with some of the greatest psychiatrists on the planet. He said to me, you think that you are your thinking. You think you're your head, don't you? And I thought, well, yeah, it's my thoughts, my mind. Yeah, it's me. It's me. He said, that's not you. I said, no. He said, no, you're the idiot that listens to it. And it was revolutionary for me. You mean to tell me that I'm not this? That I'm the listener to this? I'm the one that this scares into taking actions of self-gratification because it convinces me I'm lonely and empty? This, You mean I'm the guy that this scares me into, into lying? Into cheating? Into, into building cases against people and pushing them away based on what I think that you're thinking? You mean that's not me? I'm the idiot that it captures and drives. You know, there's a line in our book, it talks about how guys like me, uh, you know, selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. And the people that are selfish and self-centered obsessively are driven people. I'm a driven kind of guy. Driven by what? Well, a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion. I, I, I imagine all this stuff. Self-pity, self-seeking. I'm, I'm like a vacuum cleaner wanting to just to fill my vacancies up by acquisition. I'm a self-seeker. And I'm driven by these things. And what happens when you're driven by all this crap? You step on the toes of other people. You don't even know you're doing it. I don't even know that I've, I've alienated the people I work with by my attitude because I, don't, I can't see my attitude the way you see my attitude. I'm, I've, I've, I step on the toes of people and I don't know it. And, and, and what happens is they retaliate. Of course they do. And they hurt me seemingly without provocation, without any reason. I, do, I didn't even, I'm not even awake to how I look to them. And they step on my toes and they, I step on their toes and they retaliate. And sometimes they'll hurt me seemingly without a reason, but I will invariably, and this is why the fourth step as it's outlined in the big book is so essential that I will invariably find that I have made some decisions based on self, which later placed me in this position to be hurt. 
See, that's the problem with people that are asleep as I was in my own life. I don't understand why the girls had dumped me. I don't understand why the bosses had fired me. I don't understand why my parents won't help me anymore. I don't understand why I, I get picked on by the police. I don't understand why I don't get along with the people at work. I think they're clicky. I don't understand why I don't fit in AA and why I don't feel welcome there. But I don't see me the way everybody else sees me because if I was awake, and saw in me what they see me in me, I'd know why those girls dumped me. What I might not know is why they stayed as long as they did. I'd know why that boss fired me, those bosses fired me, because I'd see it through their eyes and I'd get it. I thought, oh my God, I never knew I was that, I was that difficult of an employee. The guy that other people walk on eggshells around. I'd understand why I don't fit in AA. I, I just had a conversation with a guy. I, I started this sponsor not too long ago, and he and we were talking about how how you if you come to meetings and you just you know walk in, you maybe you walk in a little bit late, share about your day, how you feel, and you don't do any service and you don't do anything else except attend the meeting and and make a narcissistic endeavor out of it. How how why you've he doesn't even realize why you feel like you don't fit here. The people in AA the, that are doing service and action and working the steps, and they seem clicky. But what you don't see is how you look to them. You look like a person who has no respect for Alcoholics Anonymous. You come in late, you want to share, you eat the donuts, you try to pick up a girl, and you leave early. You look like a person who doesn't really care about anything except themselves. And alcoholics, people in Alcoholics Anonymous, we give you the right to be as narcissistic and self-obsessed and selfish as you want to be. We give you that right. But don't be surprised if we don't warm up to someone who appears not to be interested in what we're doing and what we got here who appears to have a disrespect and a disdain for Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't be surprised how you're not getting invited to a lot of potlucks, right? And why in 1978, after seven years of relapsing around Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I went up to a man in my last detox and I asked him to sponsor me. And he introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous, even though I'd probably been to 150 meetings by this time. And he introduced me through my actions. He had the saying one time, he said, you don't feel like you fit in AA. He said, because you're not doing the things that the people who fit here do to feel like they fit. And he got me to come to meetings early and get there way before the meeting started to volunteer for everything, to help with the chairs, the, the coffee, the cleanup. When I got my first $100 car to give new guys rides to meetings, to take meetings into hospitals and institutions, to claim my place and purpose here. And we, he got me to do that through my actions. 
I'll tell you something, I could have come to Alcoholics Anonymous until I relapsed myself to death or took my own life, sitting in the back of the room, narcissistically concerned with myself and sharing about how I feel today and never helping anyone, never making all the amends, never doing all that stuff. I could have done that and died while attending intermittently Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And we see that all the time. We had a, a good friend who who'd backed away from AA, backed away from these actions, who just recently committed suicide. I have another really good friend who, uh, with almost 30 years of sobriety, in the last five years, he backed away from the actions of AA, and he drank right before New Year's with almost 30 years of sobriety. I've had, I had a friend who helped me so much when I was first sober, who was one of the pillars of AA stick a pistol in her mouth at 43 and a half years sober and blow her brains out. Because not of, from doing something wrong, from not doing the things that are right. She didn't die from bad actions. She died from inaction. Because alcoholism is like every other chronic illness in the world. I, just like diabetes or chronic heart disease. It's a way of, recovery is a way of life. Recovery is, at best, a daily reprieve. Contingent, not on my spiritual condition, thank God, but contingent on its maintenance. Which means that I can, I can stay sober when my spiritually, I'm not doing that well, but if I'm in the game and I'm maintaining, I'm trying to take the actions of maintenance. I'm talking to my sponsor, I'm making my commitments. Alcoholics Anonymous, if, if I was, had to go before a jury of my peers, would I be convicted as a guy who AA was the center of his life or would I be convicted of as a guy who I himself was the center of his life? The maintenance of my spiritual condition. I have a, I got a, a guy that I uh, come to really, really like it a lot. He's coming over for dinner. And we're going to go to a meeting, a live meeting tonight. We're Vegas. We're very fortunate in Las Vegas. We, un, unlike some parts of, of the world, that's completely locked down. We have some live meetings. I mean, you got to mask up and go. And, and I don't, I don't have any, I, my relationship with God and trusting God, even though it took a lot of decades here to start to really trust him, I trust him. I, I got vaccinated already. I don't, I don't, I don't, I've never through the whole thing had any COVID phobia. I have respect. I have consideration. I wear a mask. I do all those things. Uh, not, not because I'm afraid for myself. I, 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 God's got me, but I do it because I care about you. And so I do it. Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me to be a team player, not to be, not to be the guy who rebels against everything, but to be a team player. So I do that. But to, to be free of the fear is such a blessing. I, I know people that are just have high, high levels of COVID anxiety. And there's no comfort in fear. There's no security in fear. When, when Wilson said in step seven of the 12 steps and 12 traditions that 
that self-centered fear is the chief activator of all my defects. Man, he hit something on the head there. You, you, you want to get me to lie to you? Scare me. I may have to come back and make amends later, but I, I'm capable. You want to get me to, to steal or, or cheat a little bit financially, but, you know, twist things a little bit in my favor? Scare me. Get me some financial insecurity going on. Now, I may have to come back and make amends later, but fear really truly is the chief activator of all, all my defects. And so the answer, there's only, and when I first got sober, resentment was the big deal. And now it, it seems to be over the last uh, 20 years, at least fear is the tall pole in the, in the tent because fear is what drives the resentments. Fear of being alone or being bored or ungratified is what drives the lust. It's what drives the greed. It's what drives the gluttony. It's all these internal vacancies and inadequacies is, are the driving forces in my life. And so the only, the only solution that AA offers for fear is to live on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. And I'll tell you what I discovered about trust. It's not a feeling. It's an action. It's a way of showing up. It's a way of conducting yourself in the midst of fear and anxiety and worry to act like someone who, who God has gotten their back. And... Um, I think the screen just went away. Maybe is that the sign that I'm supposed to quit? Um, it says I don't know. five minutes left. Okay. All right. I'm looking at somebody's Google page. Um, <laughs> so I, I heard, I was in a meeting probably 40 years ago, and the subject was step 10. And everybody was talking about different things that they do and trying to check themselves out and do personal inventory. And there was an old timer there and he, he listened to all this for quite some time. And then he, he was called on and he said, you know, I appreciate everything everybody's saying about this. He said, but I, I try to live a simplistic spiritual life. And he said, it's very simple to me. If I want to know how I'm doing spiritually, I mean, you can write and do all that stuff. He said, but it's real. I just keep it simple. He said, I just look around me. And if everybody I see seems to be doing okay, not perfect, struggling as I struggle from time to time with, with the defects that we all seem to share. But I see myself in them and I, and I feel a closeness to them. He said, you can bet that I'm doing pretty good spiritually. But if I look around me and I just see stupid people, I see selfish people, I see people that somebody should straighten out, you can bet your money that I am spiritually sick because I am the source of all the conflict. I'm the source of the judgment. I'm the source of the problems. When it says in our 12th tradition that we, that we're going to put principles before personalities. It's, it's my personality that I have to put the principles of AA before. 
It's my personality that I have to get out of the driver's seat. It's my personality that will cause me problems in my selfishness and in my fear and in my judgments and opinions. It's my personality that is the source of the separation. And so one of the greatest factors in my recovery is when I was brand new, I wasn't even out of detox a week. And my sponsor started pushing me into taking meetings back into that detox and to sign up for some other service commitments and to go on 12 step calls. And, and I started sponsoring guys and, you know, in my first few months of sobriety. And I started finding this vehicle that is designed unbeknownst to me to relieve me of this bondage of self. When I meet a guy in the detox who's drank again after 20 years of sobriety, uh, I, I, don't, I know why he's there because I've been polling these guys for, for 42 years. And I know why he's there. And it's not because he stopped going to meetings. I, I've met guys that went to two meetings the day they drank. It's not because he stopped having a relationship with God. I've met clergy who pray more than we most of us pray in a week in one day. But if you ask the new, the guy who's new again after being sober 10, 15, 20, 25 years, ask him this question. Say to him, I'm very sorry that you relapsed. I'd like to help. If you could give me the names and phone numbers of all the new guys in their first 90 days to six months that you've been working with and trying to take through the steps, I would be glad to call them and, and, and help out while you're here. And I think you may find what I've found with a consistency. There isn't anybody. They may have sponsees that are sober 10 years, that they, but they don't have anybody new anymore. Their primary purpose has become themselves. And it's killing them. It's killing them. When it says in our book that we must be rid of this selfishness or it kills us. Alcoholics Anonymous is a series of, of constant everyday altruistic other centered trusting in God actions that are designed to relieve me of this bondage of self. Some people don't want to do it. Wilson talked about it. He said, he used to use two terms. He said they either cannot or will not, almost as if he wasn't sure. Are you a cannot or are you a will not? We just know you're a won't because you don't take the actions. So stop being a won't. Say yes to Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, for what the hell do you have to lose for God's sakes? It's not like your dance card's full and your relapsing has created an amazing life. Join Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, join AA. Don't be a visitor. Don't be a self-server who floats through AA taking. Come here, be a giver. Say yes. Get a tough sponsor. Get one of those sponsors that you don't like. You know, the, with a book under his arm, service guys. Get one of those guys. 
and do everything he asks you to do. And chances are your life will change for the better as mine has. I have a great life. I, I mean, a really good life and I owe for it. I owe, I owe big time. I just came back from a month at this four-star hotel on the beach in Maui for a month. It was amazing. I got very connected to the AA group over there. I got to do service over there. I got plugged in over there because that's what we do. There's no, you, you, you don't take a vacation from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I stayed connected over there and I, I probably had 60 phone calls a day from sponsees. I never got unplugged. This is my lifeline. Alcoholics Anonymous is my vehicle to God and my vehicle back to you. It is my redemption through the actions of AA. Thank you for listening. And I uh, oh, hope I didn't offend anyone or if I didn't, uh, maybe next time.